It's Green and Growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. Brought to you by Pike Nurseries. On 95.5 WSB. Hey folks, welcome to Green and Growing. I'm so glad you're here with me early on a Saturday morning. Here with you until 9 o'clock this morning. And we will certainly get back to calls. But this is an interview I've been working on for a little bit. Joanne Goldenberg, who is the owner of Dahlonega's Butterfly Farm, That sounds like it's going to be a fascinating and fun place to visit and to bring the family. She's on with me now to tell us a little bit about the butterfly farm, its history, and how you can be a better butterfly gardener if you want to attract them to your own landscape. Joanne, good morning. Hi, good morning, Ashley. This is amazing work that you're doing because according to your website, the Dahlonega Butterfly Farm, just a vision for sustainable futures and a mission to preserve the biodiversity of the environment. So in order to do that, we have to educate people, make sure they understand nature and how we can all live together. And of course, butterflies and caterpillars are so essential to a lot of the ecosystem, you know, workings that we may or may not understand. So I want to ask you first, how did you come up with this idea and when did you start the farm? Well, you know, I've always been an environmentalist ever since I was a little kid, probably seven or eight years old, and um, I really just wanted to do something great for the environment. Um, I've loved plants. Uh, My secret place was always my garden. Uh, So a lot of people don't know I used to work in corporate America. I did that for about 20 years, and I just always loved to get home, get off work, and get into my garden. And um, as I got older, I realized that I wanted to do something that made a difference. And butterflies are just a great way to teach people about um, the importance of our pollinators and also the things we can do, you know, to plant native plants and, and things like that. You've got eight acres up there in Dahlonega and an almost 800-square-foot butterfly conservatory, which I've been into one, I think, in Houston years and years ago when I was a teenager. But tell folks what that is and what they can expect when they go into the conservatory. Yes, as you said, it's an 800-square-foot conservatory. We usually house about 150 uh, domestic butterflies in there. And when guests go in, they get uh, what we call a nectar stick. It's a little stick that has nectar, and they get to actually go and feed a butterfly. Um, It's a very tropical greenhouse. There's all kinds of perennials and tropical plants in there. And it's just a beautiful uh, greenhouse conservatory to to go into. It's quite inspiring for people who've never been in one. And I think at first it may freak some folks out, you know, who who, don't, who think they don't like insects. Mm-hmm. When a butterfly lands on you, it's kind of like, oh, oh gosh. But then you get used to it. And by the time you leave the conservatory, it feels so neat that it's so interactive. Something I learned about opening this is there are actually people that have a fear of butterflies. And there are some children that go in, they start crying. And I think it's, uh, there's a lot of stimulation with butterflies flying around their head. And it's very up close and Uh, When you're that close, like you said, to insects, some people just fear flying insects, and if they land on them, it's it's another experience. But um, typically, I would say 99% of the people that go in, they just love it, and by the end of their time, they have butterflies crawling on them. 
You know what's funny? I just had to Google that, Joanne, because there's a phobia for everything, right? So I wondered if that was uh-huh. actually a thing. And it is. Let's see if I can even say it right. Lepidopterophobia okay. <laughs> means uh-huh. an irrational fear okay. of yes. butterflies well, or moths. Okay, is the family. That's a true thing. And I didn't know that, like I said, until I opened opened the farm. But there are some people that are just in terror yes. <laughs> to, to be that close to butterflies. Well, those have to be the luckiest butterflies in North Georgia with all the plants and the nectar sticks. The Delonica Butterfly Farm is now open, and I'm speaking with Joanne Goldenberg, its owner. When did you start this? Well, we opened the farm um, in 2019 in June, which was about eight months before the pandemic. And, um, of course, that wasn't the best time to open a business. Um, we, we did have to close during the pandemic season because I lost all of my school tours and senior groups um, in 2020. But uh, we're back on track. We had a really great season last year. We had about 5,000 tours. That's fun. And if people want to find out more, they can visit DelanagaButterfly.com. And I want to ask you just for your average gardener who observes things when they're out in the garden or out in the yard, um, how do they identify caterpillars? And this may sound like a dumb question, but do all caterpillars eventually become butterflies? Those are great questions. The best way to identify caterpillars is to look at what it's eating. So every caterpillar or every species of butterfly and every species of moth has a different plant that they must lay their eggs on. So that's such an important thing to know about butterfly gardening. Um, If you plant their specific host plants, which is what we call them, those butterflies will find their host plants, the females will lay eggs, and then you get caterpillars. For instance, if many people know if you plant milkweed, you will get monarchs. If you plant parsley and fennel and dillweed, you will end up getting black swallowtails. So every butterfly has its own specific plant, and no two are the same. And that actually helps the biodiversity of our environment, and it's really the only way nature works. The second question, they all become butterflies and moths. They all, yes, all caterpillars go through metamorphosis. So you mentioned milkweed for the monarchs, and we know them to be the black and orange butterfly, uh, parsley and fennel for black swallowtails, which are beautiful. And they have a lot of blue on them too, right, Joanne? Yes, they do. They have a lot of blue on the tail wings. Pawpaw trees are another great host plant. Um, Those are for the zebra swallowtails, which happen to be a threatened species in Georgia. So if you want to attract that butterfly, you need to plant a pawpaw tree. Nice. All right. And for folks who may be doing apartment or condo dwelling or in the city and they don't really have, you know, an opportunity to plant trees or shrubs or even maybe, you know, a plant or two, what is a way that they can attract butterflies? Anybody in a small space can still be a butterfly gardener. They just need to uh, plant some nectaring plants. Uh, So when you think of butterfly gardening, you always want to have two types of plants. You want to have those nectar plants, which are the pretty flowering plants, and then you want to have the host plants. Um, as, as we just talked about. Now, some of the nectaring plants would be uh, coneflower, uh, black-eyed Susan, sunflowers, verbena, um, and there's quite a few small plants you could put in uh, planters and, and on a patio. Making sure a sunny spot and maybe a small water puddle. So what do they do with a water puddle, Joanne, that you may maybe put rocks at the bottom or pebbles? Well, we call that a puddling pond, and that's where the butterflies drink water. And people think, oh, they don't, they don't drink water, but they do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
every animal drinks water. So the reason we call it a puddling pond is they can't get their wings wet. So we need to put rocks and maybe some mud or some salt in the puddling pond. And that way when they step on the rocks, they can just get their proboscis uh, down into the water and take a drink. They can't land directly in the water like uh, hoverflies and things like that. And aside from the conservatory, which is what we've been talking about with Joanne Goldenberg, who owns Dahlonega Butterfly Farm, uh, what else is there to do on the property? Eight acres, that's a lot. Well, it's a work in progress. I have a a pretty large pollinator garden. It's about a one-acre-sized pollinator garden. And in that garden, you will see caterpillars. We do raise butterflies here. Uh, Raised about um, 700 last year. And I hope to continue raising more and more butterflies every year. I also have a sunflower field with, um, we just planted about 400 sunflowers this week. Beautiful. And the rain should be helping. Also, I just added a wildflower trail this year. So the wildflower trail is on another acre. Fingers crossed that my wildflowers come up. It's my first time doing a wildflower field. So we'll see how that works. And what's the time of year folks should expect to see the wildflowers? Do you have them to where they're seasonal, or is it mostly going to come on maybe September, October? Yeah, well, for my first year, I did plant a combination of annuals and perennials. Of course, the annuals will will be there this year since it's the first season. But by next season, the perennials will start to take off. Um, They can take two years to, to get established. And those perennials will really be beautiful by next year. Gardens are meant to grow, so by next year it should be beautiful. Perfect. And one more question for you, too, for parents who are poking around, you know, summer's coming up and we want to keep the kids outside and engaged and active. Uh, They're poking around the Internet looking at those butterfly garden kits. Um, I don't know a lot about them personally. I kind of remember maybe doing one when I was a kid. But what do you say about those? Mm -hmm. Are those a good idea for kids to start learning? Are they safe? Yeah, I think it's a a good beginner's way to learn about metamorphosis. and, And it's pretty fascinating for the kids. It definitely will get them involved. But um, if you don't want to spend money, I think the other way is to just go outside in the garden and start looking at things up close, you know, look at leaves, um, look for caterpillars, and just start exploring the outdoors. Joanne, I couldn't have said it better myself. Well, folks can look to say hi to you as you open today. Congratulations. And they can buy tickets or find out more at DahlonegaButterfly.com. Congratulations. And this is going to be a big year for you. Sure hope so. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right, folks, stay tuned because when we come back, it's the top three things to do in the landscape this weekend. Stay right here. You're listening to 95.5 WSB. Back to the show. The weather update brought to you by Finley Roofing. It's time to do this. Green and growing. Green and growing with Ashley Frasca. Here's your garden to-do list this week. Number one, you may be starting to see large dirt mounds in sunny areas of your landscape. Yeah, you've got fire ants. The mounds can reach 7 inches high and 24 inches or more across, so use a broadcast bait, brands like Amdro or Ortho. Number two, clean out bird baths. Keep them half full with water. You can even put pebbles or something at the bottom. Make sure you're keeping up with hummingbird feeders, too, cleaning them out and filling them. And Clint Waltz, turf grass specialist from the University of Georgia, along with number three. Number three, uh, fertilizer. It's time to fertilize our warm season grasses. Uh, They've come out of dormancy, and now would be a good time to, to get our first nitrogen application out on our warm season species. And I think we have a quick couple of minutes to talk to Rick in Snellville. Good morning. Thank you so much for taking my call today, Ashley. Yeah. I. I've been fighting um, bronze juga. We got it as a small flowering plant for a flower bed, and it has literally gotten, in, gotten into our 
centipede grass, and it spreads. It has runners, just like the centipede. And I've tried to hand pick this out of the centipede grass. I'm not sure what to do to stop it. I would like to kill it, I guess, but I, I don't want to hurt my centipede grass as well. Yes, so ajuga, also bugleweed, is really beautiful as a ground cover if it stays where you want it because the leaves are like a deep purple green and then it'll have a spiky little purple flower on it. But it's really overpowering, Rick, as you have found out. It definitely could overtake centipede in a matter of of months. And it does spread by runners, so it's a little hard to, to control. I would be selective with a herbicide to use that Really, this is meticulous because I know you said you've even tried to remove it by hand and that's time consuming. This is probably just as much so, but it's going to be a little more effective. Hand painting something like Roundup on those ajuga leaves. And that's going to take some time, not spraying it or anything like that because that's going to get way too close to the centipede. But little by little trying to do that and that's going to kill it out down to the base. I would say if it's spread by seed, you know, oh, do your pre-emergence herbicide granular usually gets to seed as they germinate and kills it. But yeah, this is a little bit different. So I would start with that and digging out, you know, big squares that you can dig out and then keeping that lawn care calendar handy of when you're going to be able to fill in the spots centipede. And also keeping in mind too, anytime you've got a weed or any ground cover that you don't want competing with the grass that you do want, the tougher and more strong you make that turf, it's going to be able to choke things out. So once you get a a handle on the ajuga, it may always kind of be there. It's always going to keep spreading, unfortunately, because that's just the nature of the ground cover that it is. Don't get distracted from keeping up with the good environmental practices, you know, making sure the centipede stays watered as it needs to proper mowing height, uh, getting ahead of any diseases or anything like that, and just really keeping that tough, fertilizing it at the right time as well, which the first round of fertilizer for you for Centipede Rick is going to come up in probably the end of the month, early May. Good cultural practices like that to where it's tough enough to choke out things. But yeah, unfortunately, just spot treating the ajuga is probably the best thing you can do. And also think about a physical barrier. You know, once you've got everything kind of under control, some kind of landscape uh, ties or some kind of little plastic fencing or something like that to really delineate that spot and be able to just go at it with a weed eater in the future, right up against that divider, however you choose to divide it, and making sure that the runners don't go up over whatever you've got, be it brick or plastic or anything like that. So I hope that helps a little bit. I like a juga, but I really like your centipede too. So it is going to take some work, but you're on the right track. Manual removal A little bit of very specifically applied roundup will get you going 404-872-0750 you're listening to 95.5 wsb Growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. Brought to you by Pike Nurseries. On 95.5 WSB. Hey folks, the last half hour of Green and Growing. So glad you've spent a portion of, or maybe so far, all of your Saturday morning with us. So as you know, this is the time of the show where we speak to Pike Nurseries. They're garden experts. Give you advice, help you plant properly, 
You've heard him on the show before. I've got Charles Lampkin, horticulturalist and manager at the Marietta location, back with me to talk about tomatoes. Hey, Charles, welcome back. Good morning, Ashley. It's so nice to hear from you again. I can't wait. I know no one better than you to talk about this topic. And, you know, meteorologist Christina Edwards and I tell people, you know, around tax day, that was the middle of the month, uh, always a good rule of thumb to follow. You know, don't plant your tomatoes prior to that. But then I spoke to a friend just the other day and she went, oh, no, am I too late? And boy, I had good news for her. Like, no, you're you're not too late now. And you have what another month that you could plant tomatoes? Oh, sure, sure. My my tomatoes aren't even in the ground yet, and, and I'm not afraid of frost. I just know I have plenty of time to get them in the ground. Absolutely. So that's the good news for folks. You haven't missed out on anything. Um, and before we get into the details, Charles, and, and the ways to plant them, how to choose them, and kind of maybe which varieties you all have, um, earlier in the show, in the first hour, I had a caller ask about crop rotation. And he dreads the thought of having to do that, you know, moving his tomatoes to a different spot year to year because he already has a bed built and staked for his tomato plants. Um, what say you as far as the importance of crop rotation and about how often should you not reset tomatoes in the same place? Sure. And I think we touched on this about this time last year yeah. about crop rotation. And what I'm familiar with crop rotation is on very large scale farm and agriculture practices when you plant soybeans to get ready for your corn season and what you don't plant after corn so as far as crop rotation and anything to anything being depleted out of any of your small raised raised beds or or garden areas it's just make sure that you replenish uh your gardens with a little bit of compost year to year or from time to time and also do a soil test uh they're they're available at all of our locations, and you can send them off to the UGA Extension Office too to give you a soil analysis to see if you're missing any key micro or macronutrients. So, I, I would say don't worry about your crop rotation. Make sure all of your your nutrients are on level, and just replenish your soil with a nice with a nice organic. Um, compost um, after after your crop's over. Okay, good things to consider. And I did want to touch on that with you. You know, I emphasize the importance of how much sun they need. If you have a shaded balcony or patio or just too many trees and the tomatoes aren't going to receive enough sun, they're probably not going to do, you know, a very large yield for you. What's the minimum number of hours of sunlight? I, I would I would go with six. Okay. And, and I'm not, and there's some people, oh, I've grown them in four hours or Start start at six. Uh, a good heavy dose from morning to about two to three o'clock should be plenty. Afternoon sun is fine too. Uh, okay. But start with six hours of sun because you got to get flowers, and it's hard to get anything to flower without light. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I came out with an article in my newsletter that uh, went out to folks yesterday about how to pick out the right soil. So whether you're starting from scratch or, like you said, Charles, just year to year, you need to pick up a couple of bags of soil to replenish some nutrients in the ground. Um, what are some of the Pikes products or the bags that we're looking for? Well, you all you always want to have a really good compost or really good nutrient-rich soil uh, for your plant material. But those tend to, when they get wet, they stay wet. There's a lot of organics in there that might bog down the soil. So regular old topsoil, you just want to make sure that your that your mix is is well drained. But you want to have those good nutrients on there. But we have our veggie flower soil. We have two organic composts, one for raised bed soils in particular, and we have the cow compost and the mushroom. So 
I like a, a, a one to one to one or a one third ratio of, of a really good, really good compost, maybe, um, and then some topsoil, and then really even like a soil conditioner or something to really keep that soil loose uh, to allow for proper drainage. Good things to pick up and definitely necessary and maybe some um, like tomato tone, right, from a spoma that might help too? Sure. That's, that's a really good fertilizer. Tomato right. tone is a, is a great fertilizer. It's all organic. Um, which does very well, uh, along with other with other things. Uh, remember, uh, uh, any of your tomato fertilizer should have a really good amount of calcium in it because that's what your fruiting vegetables are going to want. It's a, a very high calcium uh, plants, and that's what they're going to want. All right, um, we're prepared. We've got those in the garden buggy. So now thinking about tomatoes. Now, when you're thinking about choosing the tomato plant that's right for you, you obviously want to think about how you plan to eat it, you know, the ways that you like them prepared and served and the way you like to eat them, and also determinate and indeterminate. So tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So when picking out tomato, your first tomato planter, you've done this for many years, think about first versus a pole versus a bush. A bush tomato can be a little bit more easily confined and grown in a container where a pole tomato is going to be pretty much indeterminate growth and continue to grow, can continue to grow. So you need a space for that and some sort of staking system. Then there are tomatoes that only fruit once and they're your determinant type. A lot of your heirloom and your fancier tomatoes are like this. Uh, So if you want to enjoy tomatoes from the next month from now all the way to Halloween, which I, which happens to me a lot, um, you, uh, you want to get an indeterminate type. A lot of those like your your little snacking tomatoes, your cherry tomatoes are going to be those. Those are your super sweet 100s. Uh, some of your larger slicing ones, uh, Rutgers, Better Boy, Big Boy, they're going to be some, some indeterminate types for you to give you uh, tomatoes basically all, all summer into fall. Gosh, that's wonderful. So indeterminate, yeah. I mean, you're going to go out there every week or so and just keep having a steady flow of new tomatoes if the plant's happy. Determinate, once you've got all the fruit ripening at once, the plant's about done. Can we uh, pull it up and throw it in the compost pile? Sure, why not? Yeah, okay. All right, so planting a tomato. Here's where we get home. We've got the soil. We've got the plants. We've got everything we need. Uh, Tell us what's best. All right, so planting a tomato, and it might depend on what size tomato you end up with, whether it's the four-pack, a, a four-inch, or maybe a big gallon-sized tomato already. First, you want to have some sort of staking system. Uh, you want that tomato to be nice up and straight in the air. As the tomato grows, you're going to remove, and it might sound strange, but you're going to remove some of the foliage and branches anywhere from the bottom of the plant up to about a foot. For several reasons. One is we don't want dirt splashing up into those leaves. It can cause some some really bad issues in the future. And and second, once that tomato plant grows, there's not going to be enough light down there to really do anything for that plant. And you don't want your plant exerting any extra energy into stems or leaves that aren't going to produce any tomatoes. So remove those on the bottom. You know, make sure your area is is, is nice and your soil's prepared before you buy all these vegetables. It's always easier to do that first than and try to get your beds prepared. Stake them, and then as they grow, you might need a cage. You might need other support, too. But in a nice sunny area, that's where you plan to put your tomato. Perfect. And then go ahead and get that uh, cage around it. That way you may keep some varmints away, but you won't have to be moving the branches and possibly breakage, you know, dealing with breakage later on. So 
Um, Charles, just like any other plant, you know, tomato plants are pretty susceptible to all kinds of different diseases and fungus and, of course, pests. You know, tomato hornworm is one that I think of most often. Uh, Will you give us just some good practices, just ways of taking care of these plants to best prevent those things? Right. So, as far as the best prevention for for diseases on tomatoes, do not overwater them. They can stay dry for several days. Um, and it will actually do a lot better than staying consistently wet. So always water in the morning and don't water the foliage. Don't water the plant. Only the ground needs the water where the roots are. So you can start there by preventing a lot of issues. Um, we are, we are going to get some bugs. We're going to get some creepy crawlies. And of course we're eating these plants and there are several uh, synthetic products that are safe to use, but some of your organics that are very popular or, a dead bug brew, Captain Jack's from Bonide is 100% organic. A lot of your soaps are still safe to use right now in warmer temperatures. And then a product that's often used in gardens is called diatomaceous earth. Mm-hmm. And it's just a powder that you sprinkle down onto the ground and uh, protects, your, protects your plants from everything crawling from the ground. And for folks like me who, oops, didn't really start seed indoors like I had intended at the end of February, early March, could I still go to Pike Nurseries and pick up a packet of seed and just straight sow the seeds into my bed? You can still buy seeds right now. I would still try to start them in one of those compostable little jiffy pots before you stick it straight into the ground. Uh, And so starting them inside, start them right outside on your balcony or in the place of your garden right now. Just wait till they get a little bit of a root system before you put them into the ground, though. Good advice. All right. Charles Lampkin from the Marietta uh, location. Tell folks how to find out more or even browse the different tomato products that you guys have. First and the easiest way to do is to stop into one of our stores. You'll see everything we have in stock right then. And then if you don't see something, maybe check out our website at pikenursery.com to see if there's anything we'd offer but didn't find that day. We're in all the social media outlets. And then, again, the best way is just to stop by and come see one of us. You're my mater guy, Charles. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. You're very welcome. Have a great day. You too. Good luck, everyone, with your tomatoes as you start your summer venture. We'll be right back with a few final thoughts before the end of the show, right here on 95.5 WSB. So as many of you may realize, I had Clint Waltz, University of Georgia turfgrass specialist, on earlier in the show. So from one expert, Charles Lampkin at Pike Nursery, to another, Clint's going to be included in this list. Green and Growing with Ashley Frasca. Here's your garden to-do list this week. All right, what a tease, because I'm going to give you number one. Clean out the bird baths, keep them half full with water, make sure you're keeping up with hummingbird feeders, cleaning them out, filling them. Please make sure if they're getting a lot of sunlight through them that you don't have those spots of black mold. And also, shallow dishes, maybe on the deck or areas that you don't frequent too often with maybe some rocks or pebbles. That way bees and other insects will be able to drink some water too. Number two, if you're seeing large dirt mounds in sunny areas and dodging those as you're mowing the grass, you've got fire ants. The mounds can reach seven inches high or 24 inches more across. Use a broadcast bait, brands like Amdro or Ortho. And Clint Waltz, turf grass specialist from the University of Georgia, along with number three. Now's a good time to get our fertilizer, first nitrogen fertilization application out on our warm season grasses. So if you have Bermuda grass or centipede grass or St. Augustine grass or uh, zoysia grass, uh, this is the time of year to go ahead and get that first nitrogen application out on those. Uh, environmental conditions are favorable for growth. 
Thank you, Clint. I've had a wonderful time putting the show together today for you, and we're already at the end of April. So coming up next month in May, our friend Mickey Gazaway from Pike Nursery will actually be in the studio with me on next Saturday, and she'll help answer some of your garden calls, garden questions, and maybe uh, landscaping ideas or plant recommendations. You know, she can really advise you on a lot of her favorite plants the week after that my friend julie is going to be along to talk about flower arranging and help you make a lot of your fresh cut flowers last a lot longer and then chopmytree.com will be back later in the month as well there's a lot going on i want you to visit my website on wsbradio.com slash green and growing there you'll see an events page and you can see uh, current events that i've been made aware of garden classes opportunities that you can take part in and hey If you're just waking up and joining us, you didn't miss any of the fun. You can listen back to the show at your leisure anytime right there on that same website, wsbradio.com slash green and growing or find green and growing on Spotify, on Google Play, in the Apple Store, anywhere you listen to your podcasts. It's ready for you. As soon as the show is over this morning, it'll be up as a podcast. You can listen to it commercial free. Appreciate you so much. Y'all have a great weekend and we'll be back together next Saturday.